Thank you. Good morning. Thank you, everybody. This morning, somebody was asking me, how are you going to spend your birthday today? Well, my answer is preaching the word of God because this evening, I still have to go to PCC Butterworth to preach in the service over there. So that's my birthday. Thank you, everybody, for the prayer and the wishes. Yesterday evening, in the first service, Pastor Wilson asked the congregation, are you ready for the word of God? And you know that usually the MC likes to ask that. So I, sometimes I sit down there, I will think to myself, what if somebody said I am not ready for the word of God? <laughs> Does that mean I don't have to preach? <laughs> we can just have a worship service, singing songs. So I want to ask you, are you ready for the word of God? Okay, let's start with a word of prayer. Father God, I just want to pray for every person here. I want to pray for the ministry of your word. I want to ask, Father, that you open our spiritual eyes to see the wonders in your word. Open our spiritual ears to hear your voice through the message that is being preached. Open our minds to understand the truths of your word. And open our hearts like the good soil to receive your word into our life, that we may be encouraged by your word and our faith may be strengthened. In Jesus' name, amen. I would like to start with a quiz. How many Psalms are there in the book of Psalms? 150. Which Psalm is the longest Psalm in the Bible? Psalm 1. One, nine. How many verses? One, seven, six verses. Which sum is the shortest sum in the Bible? One, one, seven. How many verses are there? Two. Which sum is known as the sum that the devil can quote? It's getting harder. <laughs> Psalm 91, the devil quoted Psalm 91 verses 11 to 12 when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew 4, 11 to 12. Which Psalm is written by Moses? Psalm 90. The title is A Prayer of Moses. One last question. Which Psalm am I preaching from today? <laughs> Any prophet here? None of the above. I'm preaching from Psalm 63. Today I'm preaching from Psalm 63 and the title of my message is Victory in the Wilderness. Victory in the Wilderness. Let's all stand together as we read Psalm 63 together. You God are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the riches of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Thank you. Please be seated. Where was David when he wrote this psalm? Was he in the palace, in the safety and comfort of the palace? Did he write this psalm in the study room without any distraction in the quietness of the room? Did he write it in the temple where God was worshipped? No, David was in the wilderness of Judah 
If you read at your Bible, there is a subtitle under Psalm 63 that says, A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, there were two times that we read in the Bible about David running for his life into the wilderness. The first time was when Saul was king and Saul was trying to kill David. The second time was when David was king and his son Solomon, uh, Absalom was trying to kill him. And in verse 11 of this psalm, David called himself king. So this psalm was written after David had become king. And it referred to the second time when he was running away from his son Absalom into the wilderness. The historical background to this psalm is found in 2 Samuel chapters 15 to 19. David has been reigning for many years in Jerusalem. He has been blessed by God in many ways. However, since the sins, the sin of David with Bathsheba, there have been many trials in his life. Though he repented, though he was forgiven by God, though God restored to him the joy of his salvation, but his whole family has been torn apart due to the consequences of his sins. And now his son Absalom plotted a rebellion against him. Absalom spent four years winning the hearts and the loyalty of the people of Israel and turning them against King David, and he was successful. 2 Samuel 15, verse 13 tells us, A messenger came and told David, The hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. When Absalom had gathered a large number of followers, he led a rebellion against his own father, King David. He proclaimed himself the king of Israel. Then he led an army and set out to kill his own father. What did David do? 2 Samuel 15 verse 14 tells us, Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. Where did they run to? 2 Samuel 15 verse 23 tells us, The king also crossed the Kidron Valley and all the people moved on toward the wilderness. The wilderness. David was forced to run for his life, to leave his palace in Jerusalem. Together with a group of loyal men, they went into the wilderness of Judah. The wilderness of Judah is not a place of green trees and clear mountain streams. It is a hot, a dry, a desolated, a barren land. And it was during this time when David was running for his life from his son in the midst of a very difficult time in the wilderness, facing an unknown and an uncertain future, David wrote Psalm 63. 2 Samuel 15 verse 30 tells us, But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered. He was barefoot. David was at one of the lowest points of his life. He was driven away from his home. He had to leave behind his family and his possessions. He lost his kingly position. He had to run and hide in fear of Absalom. How would you feel if your son did not just rebel against you, but wanted to kill you? This is not some Korean drama. This is real life. It really happened. We cannot imagine the pain, the anguish that David must have felt. David found himself in a literal and emotional wilderness. As we journey through our life, there are times like David, we find ourselves in the wilderness. Not a physical wilderness, but a spiritual and emotional wilderness. We experience trials, spiritual warfare, difficult times and temptations. 
Our wilderness experience may have been caused by the loss of a family member, health issues, broken relationships, job pressures, financial crisis, or even our own children's rebellion. Or maybe we are just in a wilderness experience because the pressures of life are just too overwhelming and we feel spiritually and emotionally dry and weary. There are times for many reasons in our lives, we find ourselves in the wilderness, feeling discouraged, distress, doubt, confusion, anxious, and sometimes even anger. What are we supposed to do during these moments? In this psalm, we can learn from David how to go through our wilderness experience victoriously. Today, some of you may think, this is not for me. I'm not in any wilderness. I'm going to take a nap for the next 45 minutes and wake up only when Pastor Jasmine said, Amen. I want you to know, as long as you desire to draw nearer to God in your spiritual walk or to grow stronger in your spiritual life, this psalm is for you. This is my birthday message to you. My birthday message to you is Psalm 63. So this psalm is for everyone who is here. The first thing we do is run to God and find satisfaction in Him. Run to God and find satisfaction in Him. Psalm 63 verses 1 and 5. Psalm 63 verse 1 says, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in the dry and parched land where there is no water. The very first thing that David did was to run to God. David was in the wilderness, but he did not focus on the place or the problems he was faced with or the place that he is going to run to or the pain that he is going through. His focus is on his God. He started Psalm 63 by calling out, You, God, are my God. David called God by two names. The first name God is Elohim. Elohim signifies the greatness of God, the totality of God. And the second name, God, is Yahweh or Jehovah, which is the covenant name of God. So David is saying, you, Elohim the great, the mighty God, are my Jehovah, my covenant God. David affirmed he is in a covenant relationship with God. There's not just some cry of, if there is a God out there, please answer me. God is not a God or the God, but God is my God. The intimate relationship is what characterizes our covenant relationship with God. In Exodus 6-7, God told the Israelites, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. For David... God was not an idol of gold, silver, wood, or stone. God is not a God that is far away and distant. When David calls out, my God, he is declaring that he has a personal relationship with God. Parents, let me ask you. Suppose your son, when your son is very young, okay, and falls down and hurt himself, and you are not there, who is the first person your child will cry out for? I want my mommy. Most of the time they cry, I want my mommy rather than I want my daddy. Did your child ever cry out, I want my doctor? No. Even if you are not there and your child's teacher or your friend is there, they may try all their best to comfort the child. Sing a song. Dance Barney, the purple dinosaur dance. Okay? But nothing will work to comfort the child. What the child wants at that moment is the person closest to them to come and show concern to him. David's cry is a cry that he needs God. He's God. It is a cry that says, I want my God. God is the living God who cares for him. You, God, are my God. It's a cry from David's heart that he belongs to God. God is his God. God is on his side. God is for him. God is with him. Today, if you have accepted Jesus as your saviour, you have become a child of God through the blood of Jesus. Then you too, like David, belongs to God. 
You have a real and personal relationship with God. You are in a covenant relationship with God and God is your God. The communion that we just partake is a reminder of our covenant relationship with God. God is not just some aloof and distant deity somewhere in heaven. God is a personal God who cares for you, who is with you wherever you are, just as he was with David in the wilderness. I want us all to do something now. I want us all to say aloud, say to God, maybe close your eyes so that you're not saying, looking at me and saying it. Close your eyes and say three times, God, you are my God. 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 I think that at times we need to say that to remind ourselves, God, you are my God. I have a personal relationship with you. David continues on to say, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. First, David says, earnestly I seek you. Then he expresses it in another way. I thirst for you. Again, he says it in yet another way. My whole being longs for you. Then he continues, in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Think about this phrase. If the land is dry and parched, what is missing in the land? Water. Right? Water. Then why did David add the phrase where there is no water? It is to emphasize a point so that when we read the psalm, which is a poetry, we get a better idea of what the writer is trying to emphasize. It is like me telling you, I am hungry. I am so hungry. Then to emphasize my point that I'm really hungry, I might say, I'm so hungry I can eat an elephant. That emphasizes the point. You have a better idea how hungry I am. So David is using these descriptions, these expressions to illustrate his longing and his desire for God. Even though he is in the desert, he has many other needs such as food, water, shade, comfort or rest. David is telling God that his biggest need is God himself. What David hungers and thirsts far above anything else is God. There is nothing in the world that he desires more than to be close to God. In the wilderness, David runs to God earnestly. When David runs to God earnestly, he finds full satisfaction in God. Verse 1, David says, I thirst for you. Verse 5, David says, I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods, with the singing my lips, my mouth will praise you. David here is talking about soul satisfaction. He uses a comparison. In verse 1, he speaks about thirst in the wilderness. And then here he speaks about the enjoyment of a rich and tasty food. I want you to think of your most favorite food right now. Don't say, Pastor, I'm on a diet. Okay, forget about your diet now. Just think of your most favorite food, what you really, really, really like to eat, really love to eat. Some of you children may be thinking of McDonald's, KFC chicken, A&W hot dog, Domino's, Domino's pizza. Adults could be thinking of picking roast duck, sweet and sour fish, Captain Curry chicken. And I know some of you, your favorite uh, food is roast pork. When it is reported that fatty pork is ranked number eight among the 10 most nutritious food in the world, I think you are so glad that you can eat your silver without any guilt. Whatever your most favorite food is, Think about the yummy taste, the enjoyment, the satisfaction you had of eating that food. And I think some of you, your saliva glands are starting to work. That is the picture that David gives us here. As king, 
David had enjoyed the richest of food back in the palace. He was fully satisfied. And so here he compares the satisfaction that he found in God to that of satisfaction of a great meal. David said, I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. The satisfaction that David found in God caused him to sing songs of praises to God. Husband, it's just like after you eat a satisfying meal cooked by your wife, you praise her. Do you do that? If your husband don't do that, don't cook for him anymore. One day, a husband took his wife to eat at a restaurant. When their food arrived, the husband said, Our food has arrived. Let's quickly eat. His wife reminded him, Honey, you always say your prayers at home before your dinner. Her husband replied, That is at home, my dear. Here the chef knows how to cook. <laughs> David praises God. For he knew that God alone can satisfy him and meet all his needs. He affirmed what he wrote when he was a shepherd boy in Psalm 23 verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in one. It simply means God is my shepherd, I am satisfied. I have everything I want in him. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, said it in another way. Our souls are restless till they find their rest in God. How true indeed that only God can satisfy the inner longings of our heart and our souls. We do need to run to God earnestly in our times of trouble. When our wilderness experience causes us to be discouraged or bitter or angry or we are spiritually dry, it is easy to run away from God. It is easy to push God away, to blame God, or to distance yourself away from God. Remember that David wrote this psalm in the wilderness. David wrote this psalm from a place of suffering. Instead of being overcome with fear or discontentment or revenge, David runs to God and finds that even in a very difficult situation, his soul is satisfied. It is a reminder to us that when life is full of disappointments, our souls can be fully satisfied in God. We need to realize like David, God is the only one who can truly satisfy us. No matter what life may bring us, we can only be fully satisfied in Him. When we are thirsty, He is our living water. When we are hungry, he is our bread of life. When we are distressed, He is our comfort. When we are weary, He is our rest. When we are lost, He is our way. When we are weak, He is our strength. When we are anxious, He is our peace. When we are sick, He is our health and our healing. When we are lonely, He is our faithful companion. Run to God and find your satisfaction in Him alone. God is the only one who will truly satisfy us. The second thing in this psalm is reflect on God and be strengthened in your faith. Reflect on God and be strengthened in your faith. Psalm 63 verses 2 to 4 and 6 to 7. The second thing David did in the wilderness was he reflected on God continually. Verse 6 says, On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. During David's time, the Israelites divided the night into three parts of four hours each called watches. It is not the kind of watch that we wear telling us the time. It refers to people staying awake and watching for strangers to come. So when David said, I think of you through the watches of night, he is saying he is thinking of God all night long. David used two phrases to describe what he did. To describe what he did. First, he remembers God. Then, he thinks of God. To remember is to call something to the conscious mind from the past. 
He remembers something from the past or some incident. And the phrase, think of, or in the New King James Version, it put meditate, is to reflect deeply. So David recalls something from the past and then he reflects deeply about that thing or that incident. David did not spend his night thinking of his present struggles. Instead of letting his thoughts wander about thinking about revenge or where can he run to hide or how can he get out of his situation, David set his thoughts on God. David set his thoughts on God. What did David call to his mind? What did David reflect on? David is strengthened in his faith as he remembers who God is. The first thing he remembers is who God is. David is strengthened in his faith when he remembers who God is. And this comes as he remembers his encounter with God in worship in the sanctuary. The sanctuary at that time was the tabernacle, the tent of building before the temple was built, where God's glorious presence resided in a special way with the Israelites. So what did David see in the sanctuary? Verse 2 tells us, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. And verse 3 says, Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. David remembers God's power, God's glory, God's steadfast love. He remembers that this is a God who can take care of him, even in very difficult times. And he remembers this is a God who is faithful. When he used the word love in verse 3, it refers to God's faithful, loyal love. God is a God who is faithful to keep his word and his promises. David has experienced God's steadfast love in his own life. David's worship encounter with God in the sanctuary, where he experienced God's power, God's glory, and God's steadfast love, prepared his heart for the difficult days in the wilderness. Someone put it this way, it is our regular worship that prepares us for the crisis experiences of life. It is important for us to come together as a family of God, to worship together, to encounter God's presence here, to encounter God's power and God's glory in our service. And this will prepare us for the time when we may be in a wilderness experience. So much so that David can even say, your love is better than life. Your love is better than life. His life has been turned upside down. He has gone from luxury to the wilderness, from power to weakness, from respect to dishonor, from safety to danger. But knowing that God will faithfully and lovingly watch over him is better than life. That means to him, it is better than his former life of good things. He knew his life has no meaning without God. He knew his life has no direction without God. Yes, he is in the wilderness, but he knows that God will continue to show to him his faithful love. David remembered who God is from his times of worship. God's power, God's glory, God's love. And this strengthened his faith in the difficult time of his life. As we remember who God is, his power, his greatness, his mercy, his goodness, this will strengthen our faith in him. The second thing is David is strengthened in his faith as he remembers how God has helped him in the past. What did David remember about God? Verse 6 says, On my bed I remember you, I think of you through the watches of the night. Verse 7 says, Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. David remembers all the times that God has helped him in the past. He said, You are my help. This means that he has personally experienced God's help. He could remember definite times in the past when God has helped him out of many difficult situations and even including life-threatening situations. There were several occasions when God had protected him and God had helped David. 
God helped David rescue the sheep from the lion and the bear when he was a shepherd boy. God helped him defeat Goliath, the giant, with just a little stone. Twice King David picked up his spear and attempted to kill David. And both times David escaped because the Bible tells us God was with him to help him. And when Saul chased David throughout the wilderness, God protected David and allowed him to escape from Saul's hand. 1 Samuel 23, 14 tells us, And Saul sought David every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. God helped him in battle to, deliver, to defeat many of Israel's enemies, even though they were more powerful and more numerous. And God has anointed him and made him the king of Israel. As David reflects on who God is, how God has been his help, what is the result? His faith is strengthened. He is full of praises for God. Verse 3b tells us, My lips will glorify you. Verse 4 says, I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. Verse 5b tells us, with singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Verse 7b tells us, I sing in the shadow of your wings. His circumstances have not changed. He is still in the wilderness running for his life. But when David reflects upon God's power, God's love, and God's help, it leads him to praise and, and worship God in the midst of his trial. And so, in the wilderness, in the desert, with no choir, no backup singer, no worship leader, no Weisong there to lead worship, no instruments, no sacrifices, David's faith was strengthened and he praises and worships God with the fullest expression of his body and soul. Let us learn from David that in our times of trials and wilderness experience, that we will reflect on God, how God has been our help in the past. Think back on your life for just a minute this morning. Can you remember how God has helped you through the ups and downs in your life? Can you see His love and His mercy and His goodness and how He has walked with you? Has God provided for a financial need? Has God opened a door and provided you with a job? Have you been healed of a sickness? Has God sent you someone to encourage you when you were down? Has God protected you from danger and from accident? Has God set you free from a bondage or a bad habit? Reflect upon the times God has helped you through difficulties and let your faith be strengthened. The third thing we see in this psalm is Rely on God and trust Him to deliver you. Psalm 63 verses 8 to 11. David relies on God and trusts God to deliver him. Verse 8 says, I cling to you, your right hand upholds me. The word cling is used of the marriage relationship to describe the unbreakable bond between a husband and wife. It is used in Genesis 2.24 that tells us a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and they shall be one flesh. The same word is used in the story of Ruth and Naomi. Naomi's two sons died, leaving her with two daughters-in-law. She released them to return to their hometown so that they could find other men to marry. But Ruth was determined not to leave Naomi. Look at the verses there. Ruth 1 verses 14 to 17. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Opah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. And this is how she clings on to Naomi. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Instead of going back to her hometown, 
Ruth renewed a solemn vow to cling on to Naomi and to Naomi's God. And the result of her commitment, God provided for Ruth. Ruth married Boaz and had a son. And God honoured her for her commitment. This word clean literally means to be glued to. So I cling to you means I am glued to you. Just as a husband cling to his wife, just as Ruth cling to Naomi, David wants to cling to God. He wants to lean upon God. He wants to stick to God like glue and hold on to God without letting go. As he cling on to God, God will uphold him with his hand. Is God right-handed or left-handed? Both-handed. That's a good answer. A little boy named Philip was walking home in the rain with his mother after his Sunday school class. And as they walked down the road, it finally stopped raining. And to their surprise and delight, there appeared a vivid double rainbow in the sky. Doesn't it look like an artist painted this rainbow? His mother exclaimed. I think God painted this just for you. Yes, replied Philip. God did it, and he did it left-handed. Confused, his mother asked him, What makes you say God did this with his left hand? Well, said Philip, We learned in Sunday school that Jesus sits on God's right hand. What he means is that Jesus sits on God's right hand, so God cannot use his right hand. He has to use his left hand. You are smarter than this Philip boy. <laughs> Verse 8 says, I cling to you, your right hand upholds me. What is God's right hand? Let's just look at some verses. There are many verses in the Bible, but I just picked three verses that tells us what is God's right hand. Let's read all the verses together. Psalm 118 verse 16. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. Exodus 15 verse 6. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. Isaiah 48 verse 13, this is God speaking. My own hand laid the foundations of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I summoned them, they all stand up together. Throughout the Bible, God's right hand is the symbol of His power, His protection, His love, and His grace. The God who holds the universe is the God who upholds you in His hands. You can rest assured that when you are in God's hands, you are in good hands. I read a newspaper report dated December 4, 2018, just about a year ago. Tun Dr. Siti Hasma, it was reported. Tun Dr. Siti Hasma, the wife of our present uh, Prime Minister, Dr. Mahathir, shared an incident that happened in Tokyo. She was accompanying Dr. Mahathir on an official visit to Tokyo, Japan. While walking along the road, she mistakenly held the hand of another man. She said, it was someone else's hand. I was so ashamed. I scolded my husband, Dr. Mahathir. Imagine scolding the Prime Minister. I scolded my husband and told him, that is what happened when you are not beside me. Don't cling to the wrong person. Cling to God. Once when I was in Singapore in one of the shopping malls, I sat down on one of the chairs on the walkway to rest my feet and just watch, watch the people walking by. Then I saw one man walking quite fast. His right hand was holding his phone. He was looking at his phone. His left hand was holding on to a girl, a woman, either his wife or his uh, girlfriend. She was behind him trying to catch up with him and she was wearing high heels. At one moment, he just let go of her hand just to, I think, text something or reply something. Then after that, he just stretched out his hand and without looking back, he grabbed the woman's hand again. However, it was the wrong woman. <laughs> the other woman was shocked and shouted at him in Mandarin and pulled her hand back. Then only he turned around and saw his mistake. At that time, his wife or girlfriend also caught up and she scolded him for letting go of her hand and simply grabbing another woman's hand. 
And I think that it is his girlfriend, not his wife. Because husbands do, usually don't hold your wife's hand when you walk shopping, right? <laughs> a man told his friend, after you hear this husband, you will hold on to your wife's hand. A man told his friend, I saw you holding your wife's hand while shopping. So romantic. His friend replied him, it is not romantic. It is more economic. So my wife will not let go and just go and buy anything. <laughs> so husband, make sure you hold on to your wife's hand when you go shopping. Well, the thing I want to share is this, that when you cling on to God, God will not let go of your hand. God will not let go of your hand, but God will uphold you with his hand. God will not lose his grip on you. As David clings to God, he knows that God's right hand is upholding him. Even though he's facing all these troubles, but he trusts in God that God will protect him, God will deliver him from his enemies. So David ends his psalm by speaking prophetically in faith of God's deliverance. Verses 9 to 11, Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. Verse 10, they will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. Verse 11, but the king will rejoice in God, who swear by God, all who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. David prophesied three things concerning his enemies. First is that those seeking his life will be destroyed. The second thing is that those who live by the sword will be slain in battle and become food for the war beasts. And the third thing is that those who tell lies will be silenced, means that they will die. How can David be so sure of the fate of his enemies? It is because David believes and he knows that the lives of his enemies did not rest on him in his own hands, but it rests in the hands of his God. David did not conspire to think about how he's going to regain his kingdom. He simply trusts in God to vindicate him. He knows that God will right the wrongs that have been done against him. He knows that God has chosen him to be the king of Israel and God will keep his promise to him. No human powers can take away the position that God has ordained for him. So in verse 9, he called himself the king and said, but the king will rejoice in God. David will rejoice in God, not in the destruction of his enemies. His trust was in God, that God will keep his promise. God will restore him as the king of Israel. 2 Samuel chapters 18 to 20 tells us that all of his prophecies came true. His enemies were destroyed, including his own son, Absalom. And David was restored as the king of Israel. What do you trust in? When life is tough, who do you trust? Who do you cling on to? Do you trust in your own wisdom? Do you trust in your own plan? Or do you trust in someone else to bring you out of your difficulties? Or do you trust in God? David relied on God and trust in God to deliver him. Wherever we go, whatever we do, we need to rely on God. We need to cling on to God and trust Him. And as we do that, God's hand will uphold us. And we can rely on Him and we can trust on Him to act on our behalf and to deliver us out of all our difficulties. In conclusion, I want to tell this story. How many of you know of Charles Spurgeon or you have heard of him? Charles Spurgeon. Okay, Charles Spurgeon was the famous 19th century London preacher known as the Prince of Preachers. But did you know that very early in his ministry, he had a terrible wilderness experience? Charles Spurgeon was converted at age 15. He preached his first sermon just after his 16th birthday. By age 18, he was pastoring his first church in the countryside in England. At age 19, God called him to London and he became the pastor at London's New Park Street Chapel. 
He was a celebrity pastor of his time. He attracted large crowds of people to attend his church services, so much so that his church building was too small. And even though the building could seat 1,200 uh, people, it could not hold the overflowing crowd of people. So over the next three years, he upgraded to a larger building and then another one, but he outgrew both buildings. He then rented the Saray Garden Music Hall, which could hold 10,000 to 12,000 people. At age 22, he became a very young senior pastor of one of the first ever mega churches. He and his wife Susanna had been married less than one year. Their sons, Charles and Thomas, were infants. That means that he married when he was age 21. It was at the age of 22 that he went through a wilderness experience that caused him to almost quit the ministry. On the Sunday evening service of October 19, 1856, the hall was filled with 12,000 people seated with another 10,000 people outside the building, standing on the street, eager to hear his preaching and to catch his sermon. Just as Charles Spurgeon began to preach, there were cries from the audience shouting, Fire! The galleries are giving away! The place is falling! The place is falling! And as you imagine, there was a mad panic. Panic broke out. In a mad rush to get out of the building, seven people were trampled to death and another 28 were severely injured. To make this tragedy even worse, there was no fire. It was just all a senseless prank. Spurgeon's sermon text for that day, which he read to the people just before the tragedy broke out, was from Proverbs 3 verse 33. The curse of the Lord is in the house of the wicked. It was a verse that he would never preach again. The newspapers used this to attack Spurgeon, blame the tragedy on him. They reported, Mr. Spurgeon is a preacher who hurls damnation at the head of his sinful hearers. What they meant was that he cursed the people and that's why the tragedy happened. Wrecked with guilt, Spurgeon went into a period of deep depression where he came close to giving up on the ministry. This young prince of preachers went through a wilderness experience at the age of 22. God helped him to deliver him out of this depression. Two weeks later, Spurgeon recovered enough to preach again. And these are the words that Charles Spurgeon spoke to his congregation on the first Sunday evening service that he returned to the pulpit to preach. He said, I have gone to the very bottoms of the mountains, as some of you know, in a night that never can be erased from my memory. But as far as my witness goes, I can say that the Lord is able to save unto the uttermost. And in the last extremity, he has been a good God to me. Spurgeon declared that God is good no matter what happened. God delivered him and God used this horrible event in his life to save the lives and souls of countless other people. The widely circulated negative newspaper reports that caused, caused him the, the negative reports caused this young pastor's preaching and sermon to be known all over England and all over the world. His ministry continued to expand. He had preached in person to an estimated 10 million people in less than four decades. 56 million copies of his sermons are in circulation today, with many translated to more than 40 languages. His sermons continues to minister and inspire many people today. Today, whether you're going through a wilderness experience, or whether you're just spiritually dry, emotionally dry, or whether you just want to grow stronger in your spiritual life, God can give you victory. Run to God, find your satisfaction in Him, reflect on God, and be strengthened in your faith. Rely on God and trust Him 
to deliver you. Let us pray. Let us bow our heads and close our eyes. In this attitude of worship, as we reflect on the Word of God, I want to speak to any one of you here who is not a Christian. Today, if you are not a Christian, I want you to know that God loves you so much. He gave His one and only Son, Jesus, to die at the cross of Calvary so that your sins can be forgiven. You may have been in the wilderness of your life, or you may have been just trying to find something to satisfy the, toll, the thirst of your life or the emptiness in your life. I want you to know there's only one who can satisfy you and fill the emptiness in your life, and that is Jesus Christ. God wants you to believe in Jesus, to accept Him as your Savior, so that He can forgive you of your sin and give you a new life. God wants to become your Heavenly Father and accept you as His child. All you have to do is to say a prayer to invite God into your life and He will come and be your Heavenly Father. Today, if you are not a Christian and you want to accept Jesus, I want you to just put up your hand so that I can lead you in a prayer. Anyone here, you're not a Christian, but you like to accept Jesus into your life and into your heart. Just put up your hand. Is there anyone here? Maybe you're too shy to raise your hand. After the service, you can come to any of the pastors and tell them that you like to accept Jesus and we can still pray for you. Church, as we remain in this attitude of worship, I want you to focus on God. I want you to tell God, God, you are my God. Only you can satisfy the longing in my heart. God, I want more of you. God, I want to love you more and more. Take me deeper into your love. God, you are the living water that will satisfy the longing in my heart. God, help me to love you more and more. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Before I pray for you all, let us all stand and let's just use this song to express the longing in our heart. A longing that only God can satisfy. Let's use this song to express that we want to be deeper in love with God, deeper than we have ever been before. <laughs> 